Welcome. Uh, wanted to give you, last week we announced uh, this, this terrible accident that Wally Foss had been in, and uh, just, just a quick update on Wally. He's, he, the, I saw him a couple days ago and, and heard updates since. Uh, he was able to, to walk me through as he moved all the fingers in his uh, right hand, and, uh, and then he was able to grab, apparently yesterday, he was able to grab his wife's hand and hold it and he's moved three fingers in his left, so there's, there's, re there's recovery going on there. So keep praying for them as they go through this. Uh, they've got great spirits, but he's gonna be in the hospital for a long time. And so uh, let's keep praying for them and, and for their recovery. And uh, I know many of you are going through any number of things. Let's uh, uh, keep praying for one another. Let's keep looking to support one another and, and, and connect with each other. That's one of the reasons we have that greeting time, by the way, is so that we can continue to, to love on one another and, and get to know one another better. Um, we're going to get into the scripture this morning. It, if you have a Bible, I, I, I love the fact that we read, wasn't that like the multiple tongues reading there? Uh, thanks, Jerry, for reading your really different version very loudly. <laughs> it was annoying, actually. Don't do it again. <laughs> um, we're, we're looking at Matthew chapter 5. This is this Beatitudes uh, series that we're in. And, and uh, if you turn there, if you want a Bible, wave your hand and these guys would give you that. And, and feel free, gentlemen, yeah, pass those out. That'd be awesome. Let me ask you this morning, any of you science buffs? Anybody just love science? Anyone willing to admit to that? Yeah, well, like two people. No, I don't love science. Uh, this week, I, my, my son actually was a real lover of science until he actually attended a science class. <laughs> and then things changed. It was kind of funny. Uh, this week, I came across a collection of real answers from children on science exams. It's kind of funny what they came up with. Uh, so questions and answers. Question, name the four seasons. Answer, salt, pepper, mustard, and vinegar. There you go, in case you didn't know. How can you delay milk turning sour? I love this one. Keep it in the cow. <laughs> what happens to your body as you age? When you get old, so do your bowels, and you get intercontinental. <laughs> Some of you resemble that remark. Uh, what happens to a boy when he reaches puberty? He says goodbye to his boyhood and looks forward to his adultery. What is the, the fibula? <laughs> a small lie. <laughs> this is maybe my favorite. I don't know if you'll get it. You have to be pretty sharp, so tune in. What does varicose mean? Varicose mean? Nearby. <laughs> very close, very close. Uh, give the meaning of the term Caesarean section. <laughs> the Caesarean section is a district in Rome. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, what does the word benign mean? <laughs> benign is what you'll be after you be eight. <laughs> oh, it's uh, kind of funny. I hope we would do better. No guarantees. Uh, now, one of the questions we often ask children is, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? That's a common question. I mean, I've asked you that before, but I think a better question to ask is, what kind of person do you want to be when you grow up? What kind of person do you want to be? What might that look like? 
And as I said already, we're in this series on the Beatitudes and, and Jesus teaching in the Beatitudes. And you might say, these, these eight blessings, these eight sayings of Jesus are answering this question from God's perspective as to who are the kind of people he wants us to be? Who are the kind of people he actually made you and I to be like? And so to understand the Beatitudes, it's important to remember that he's not talking, God is not talking, Jesus is not talking about eight different kinds of people. He's actually talking about one kind of person, the kind of person who has entered the kingdom of God. (laughs) Jesus is describing those who've entered the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Now, the first three Beatitudes that we've looked at so far, they're all kind of... are almost negative in bent, and, and uh, they, they really are tied into one another. Um, and, and, and all, I'm gonna, they all kind of unpack for us, I think, what entering the kingdom of God looks like. Let me give you a quick review. First, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're first poor in spirit. And to be poor in spirit is to admit that your problems are beyond you. It's to admit that we're bankrupt in a sense and that we don't have any ways to pay our debt. It goes counter to everything we learn growing up as kids and te- as teenagers, uh, as even young adults. We kind of learn this, this, this idea that life is manageable, <laughs> that, that, that there's nothing we'll face that we can't handle. Anything we face is solvable. And then, then life happens. We, we say that, right? Stuff happens, and that whole idea gets disillusioned. Um, as Angel said last, last week, uh, it was marriage and children for her that, that <laughs> happened for her that, that disillusioned her idea that life was manageable on her own, in, in, in a way. Uh, this week I was visited by CSIS, a, a, an officer from CSIS. It was really weird. CSIS, if, in case you didn't know, it's like, it's sweet, exactly. It's like our Canada's spy agency. Um, and it was very underwhelming. He was just a regular guy. You know, like no James Bond, nothing. It was like a Canadian version of a spy, I guess you might say. And uh, we're sitting over in my office and he's actually investigating one of you. Some of you have done something really bad. (laughs) Actually, he wanted, somebody has applied for a government job and and, uh, they're doing an in-depth reference. So it's nothing that interesting. But uh, he, he was really curious about my job as a pastor, and he kept asking me questions, and we got talking about people, and uh, he said, he, he went on to describe people that in his life who, at some point along the way, life fell apart. And he says, it's, it's surprised me, it's happened to the most, the, the people you'd assume it would never happen to. A guy he knew in high school who, uh, at age 40, in his early 40s, is now a meth addict. And he's going like, this was the guy most eligible to succeed. And, and what happened? I, I have no idea. You know, life kind of catches up to all of us. And we don't always know we're poor in spirit, but we'll find out eventually. We really will. All of us will find, find out eventually that we are actually poor in spirit because we find out that life is not manageable. That's the, the first uh, uh, beatitude. The second is that we must mourn. I, I loved uh, Ben's message on that. You can listen to it online. But to mourn means we, we can't just say we've got problems, which, which we can come to that place. We can come to that place where we're really open about being poor in spirit, but we actually have to mourn over them. We actually have to identify them not just as any old problem, but they're actually a spiritual problem. The core root of it is, is a sin problem. We have to get to the place where we're able to say, I have a problem with sin. I am a sinner. Um, as G.K. Chesterton said, the problem with the universe is moi, is me. 
until you can admit that, not just that your problems are beyond you, but that your problem is sin, that, that fundamental self-centeredness, you can't enter the kingdom. Thirdly, we talked about meekness. Um, here's how it works. Once you, see, once you see that your problems are actually beyond you, once you see your problems are your own selfishness and sin, that could lead you to despair, uh, to give up, uh, to get angry, uh, to respond in some way. But, or you could go to God and say, I need your help. I need your solution. I need your, your provision because I don't have any of my own. Meekness does not equal weakness. I'd say a better definition of meekness is, is strength harnessed. Angel gave a good picture of this last week, and we were snowed in here, so if you didn't make it last week, listen to that message as well. It was a, a great message on meekness. But she had this great image of meekness, and it was of this kind of wild stallion that's been brought under control, <laughs> has learned to yield to the rider. It reminded me of a powerful scene uh, from a film I watched years ago, uh, the, the Horse Whisperer. And uh, Robert Redford plays Tom Booker. It's set in the Montana uh, region, and this rancher uh, in Montana, Tom Booker, who has this uh, unique gift with horses. And the mother of a severely traumatized girl, she's been in a, an accident where she and her horse were in this accident. Her best friend was killed, and she was injured, and the horse was traumatized. They wanted to put the horse under, but instead they, they journeyed out to Montana from the East Coast and uh, met with Tom Booker, hoping that this horse can overcome its trauma. And uh, it's a beautiful film. It's a redemptive film. And the scene I want to show you is just a scene where, where the horse, uh, you can see it, it, it's, it's, in the, it's in the ring and it's wild, and Tom Booker is seeking to, to teach it meekness. Let's, let's watch the scene.
It's a powerful scene. And uh, in that scene, uh, the horse, you got this, this, they call that breaking a horse, but in a sense, you see it's the reverse there, that, that this trainer is trying to heal the horse. He's <laughs> trying to bring him to a place of wholeness. And, and I love it. It's, it's not only a great picture of meekness, the horse we're learning to, to trust Booker, trust the trainer. It's a beautiful picture of God, I think. Notice before the horse went low, he went low. <laughs> he went low and the, and, and the horse came down. I, I thought of what an image of Christ, you know, coming down in, in our midst, uh, bowing before us before we ever bow to him in many senses. It's a powerful scene. Beautiful picture of meekness. So those, are those first three beatitudes, they're actually kind of progressive. One, I think, leads to the next. Uh, in, in order to receive the blessing of the kingdom, we've got to first turn from our self-sufficiency. We turn from our, our poverty. We admit it. We, we've got to turn from our sin and our, our selfishness. And then we, in meekness, we turn our will over to God. But what does God invite us to turn to? Well, the answer is in this fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, we find this theme of righteousness, we find it all throughout Scripture. And, and I love this line in the 23rd Psalm. It has brought comfort to me many, many times. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then elsewhere in Psalms, we find that righteousness is a major characteristic of God and, and his rule and reign. Psalm 36 your righteousness, as we sang this morning, is like the, the, the highest mountain, the, the mighty mountains. Psalm 111, his righteousness endures forever. Psalm 89, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And of course, Psalm 50, the heavens declare your righteousness. Now we find it throughout Jesus' teaching, and, and we find it right in the center of the Sermon on the Mount, the, what, what people say is one of the hinge pins of the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. And then in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. In fact, you could argue that this is the theme of the Beatitudes. If you were to read the Beatitudes in the original language, the first four Beatitudes are, are 36 words leading up to the word righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then the next, 40, uh, the next four Beatitudes are, in the original language, 36 words leading up to the word righteousness. Uh, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. What is that telling us? I have no idea. Actually, it's telling us that when it comes to becoming a, a Beatitude person, righteousness is what it's all about. Righteousness is going to be a focal point of what that is. We need to learn what righteousness is. So we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're blessed. We're told we're blessed when we do that. Blessed is the person who hungers. So let's break this down, seeking so to understand what that might mean for us. Uh, first, let's, let's pause for a moment and pray. Would you do that? Bow your heads with me. Father, um, God, you set a table for us this morning. We heard about it, read in the scripture we read earlier. Come. And so we've Come. <laughs> And uh, we want to, to eat and, and be nourished by your word today. And we want to we ask you to lead us in paths of righteousness. Whatever that looks like for each of us, Lord, we pray, lead us in those paths. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it begins with, blessed are the hungry. Before we can be blessed, Jesus says we need to be hungry. 
It's interesting that Jesus compares our spiritual need to our deepest kind of most essential human experience. We all need to eat. We all need to drink. Uh, If we don't eat and drink, we die. There are things we can live without. We can live without cars. We can live without TVs. We can even live without a home. We can even live without Wi-Fi. Why would we want to? But we, we could. But we can't live without food or water. Uh, I think it's hard in, in Canada for us to understand uh, how hard it is to be hungry. I mean, generally speaking, malnutrition is not an issue in Canada. We're rolling in restaurants. Some of us are just uh, rolling, period, <laughs> in some way, shape, or form. But if you've ever actually been hungry, going without food or, or drink for a long time, you'll know the desire for food can be overwhelming. There's this desperation that comes with true hunger. Jesus is not blessing those who simply feel peckish, as in, well, I could eat. Sure, yeah. Uh, He's not blessing those who are kind of just mildly dissatisfied with themselves and the world. He's blessing those who, as Dale Bruner puts it, do not believe they can live unless they find righteousness. Why so intense? Why is it that when Jesus grabs hold of a person, why is it when the kingdom begins breaking through into a person's life that there's this, this hunger? Well, in short, uh, we hunger because God hungers. Um, I, I like how Daryl Johnson explains this. He says, we, we cannot read the biblical story without catching God's own hunger and thirst for this complete righteousness. This means that we cannot read the whole story without encountering grief, God's grief for the world, for the created order is, is now marked by so much unrighteousness, alienation, estrangement, manipulation, fear, hatred, hatred, violence, and death. You see, God himself hungers and thirsts for this, this righteousness, you know, and, and so when when we're hungry for righteousness, we're actually being kind of wooed in. We're going to be drawn in by God's hunger. I mean, that means when we're hungry, it's, it's a holy longing. And Jesus knows that without this hunger, we will have very little interest in righteousness. So God, in his mercy and in his goodness, paves the way for blessing by sending us hunger. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? Remember Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, anybody? Yeah, dude, that's righteous, which was like pot talk for. That is really, really good, right? And actually, that definition is not far off the biblical definition of of righteousness. Uh, Righteousness in the Bible essentially means approved, or to put it another way, it means rightness, to be right with somebody, to be accepted, to be received. Now, in a way, all of us, whether we are a Christian or not, we all, I would say, everyone in the human race craves righteousness. Uh, Let me explain this by throwing at you some some, uh, different scenarios and think about what they have in common. Um, You're going for a big audition. You're a musician or an artist, okay? You're uh, going for a job interview, a, a big job, very important interview. Uh, you're going on a date, a date with somebody who you desperately want to like you. 
you're submitting an application uh, for a school that you really, really want to get into, or say you're, you're submitting your name for office, you're running in, an, in some kind of election, what do all those scenarios have in common? You're waiting for something. What are you waiting for? And, and why is it so nerve-wracking? Why is it so anxiety-producing? You're, you're waiting for a verdict. You, will you be approved? Will you be received? Will, will you be deemed acceptable? You're, you're waiting for rightness. You know, will, will the, the person say that is the best performance, you know, we've ever heard? You've got the part. Or, or you beat out everybody. Your record stood above every other applicant. You've got the job. Or, you know, of course I'd like to go out with you again. <laughs> We're waiting for that. What you're waiting for is, the, is a verdict. And if that verdict comes back approving you, there's a, this tremendous joy. There's, there's real fulfillment. If it comes rejecting you, there's, uh, it's, it's the other way. It's, it's terrible. It's awful. And, and what psychologists tell us is, is what the Bible tells us, is that everyone of us struggles for this desire to be received, for this, this kind of struggle for, for self-acceptance. We all kind of have different approaches to this. For some of us, it, if I can just succeed at, at this career. For others, it's, it's if I can just be in, in this relationship. But we're all struggling, uh, have this this wrestling for living up to this approval. We're living for rightness. And then deep down, I think many of us know this, that it goes deeper than that. The approval that we need most is God's. It, it's, it's his verdict that matters most. Why? Because we're spiritual beings. And he, he's created us in his image. He's created us with this, this longing that won't be satisfied without him. Nothing else will really satisfy it unless we're deemed acceptable by him. So we're made to hunger. hunger. We're, we're made to hunger and thirst for righteousness or rightness, this being received or approved by God. And for those who hunger and thirst for rightness, they, they're promised they will be filled or, or they will be satisfied. Leads me to a question, kind of, I think it's an important one this morning. What gets in the way of that? What thwarts this hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Uh, let, let me just talk about a couple, I think, common obstacles for us. I'd say the first is our self-righteousness. Now, uh, when it comes to thinking about righteousness, we might be tempted to, to point out where we are, what, to what we have, rather than to what we lack, but Jesus says when it comes to his kingdom, it's better to come empty than to come full. But we often come to God how? Fill, filled with our own sense of rightness or, or at least our, our at least eyes. I may not be this, but at least I'm that. Or at least I have this. Pastor Charles Allen put it this way. He said, the hardest people to reach with the love of God are not bad people. They know they are bad. They have no defense. The hardest ones to win for God are the self-righteous people. And so if we want to pursue God's righteousness, we have to admit our own unrighteousness. We've got to agree with Paul in, in, in Romans 3, 3, where he says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. I, I, I like how Paul, Paul obviously came to this place in Philippians, I was reading this morning, where Paul, Paul had a great resume in terms of faith in terms of being a religious leader in his community. And listen to what, what he says. If somebody else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in themselves, in the flesh, I have more. And he goes on to list all these things. But he says, 
Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may have Christ. All these things that everybody in his community would have pointed to and said, that's Paul's rightness. You know, he's approved because of his his pedigree. All the good he's done. (laughs) Paul says, I consider all of that garbage compared to knowing Christ. Somehow we have to get to that place. And and here's the thing, it's, it's one thing. I think it's easier to let go of our sin, to admit we are poor in spirit. I think it's much harder for us to get to that place where we actually are willing to lay down our rightness, those things that we hold on to that are good about us. And, and it can be a huge block in discovering our rightness. Years ago, uh, author Rebecca Manley Pippert, she was a speaker and uh, a writer, and uh, she wrote a book called Hope Has Its Reasons. And I want to read you a passage from that book. Uh, it struck me years ago, and it struck me again when I read it again recently. Um, an encounter that she had uh, with a, a woman at one of her conferences came up to her and spoke to her. But it's a bit long, but I think it's worth it, and it makes the point better than I ever could. So just tuck in and listen. Several years ago, she said, uh, after I'd finished speaking at a conference, a lovely woman came to the platform. She obviously wanted to speak to me, and the moment I turned to her, tears welled up in her eyes. We made our way to a room where we could talk privately. It was clear from looking at her that she was sensitive but tortured. She sobbed as she told me the following story. Years before, she and her fiancé, to whom she was now married, had been the youth workers at a large church. They were a well-known couple and had an extraordinary impact on the young people. Everyone looked up to them and admired them tremendously. A few months before they were married, they began sexual relations. That left them feeling burdened with a sense of guilt and hypocrisy. But then she discovered she was pregnant. You, You can't imagine, she said, what the implications would have been of admitting this to our church, she said. To confess that we were preaching one thing and living another would have been intolerable. We didn't think we could bear the humiliation. So we made the most excruciating decision I've ever made. I had an abortion. My wedding day was the worst day of my entire life. Everyone in the church was smiling at me, thinking me a bride beaming in innocence. But do you know what was going through my head as I walked down the aisle? All I could think to myself was, you are a murderer. You were so proud that you couldn't bear the shame and humiliation of being exposed for what you are. But I know what you are, and so does God. You have murdered an innocent baby. Becky Pippert went on to say, she said she, she was sobbing so deeply she couldn't speak. As I put my arms around her, a thought came to me very strongly, but I was afraid to say it. I knew if God, if it was not from God, that it could be very destructive, so I prayed silently for the wisdom to help her. But the woman continued, I just can't believe I could do something so horrible. How could I have murdered an innocent life? How is it possible I could do such a thing? I love my husband. We have four beautiful children. I know the Bible says God forgives all sins, but I can't forgive myself. I've confessed this sin a thousand times, and I still still feel such shame and sorrow. The thought that haunts me the most is, how could I murder an innocent life? Becky says, I took a deep breath and said what I'd been thinking. I don't know why you are so surprised. This isn't the first time your sin has led to death. It's the second. She looked at me in utter amazement. 
My dear friend, I continued, when you look at the cross, all of us show up as crucifiers. Religious or non-religious, good or bad, aborters or non-aborters, all of us are responsible for the death of the only innocent who ever lived. Jesus died for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Do you think there are any sins of yours that Jesus didn't have to die for? The very sin of a pride that caused you to destroy your child is what killed Christ as well. It doesn't matter that, that you weren't there 2,000 years ago. We all sent him there. Luther said that we carry his very nails in our pockets. So if you've done it before, then why couldn't you do it again? She stopped crying. She looked at me straight in the eyes and said, I came to you saying I had done the worst thing imaginable, and you tell me I've done something even worse than that. I grimaced because I knew this was true. I'm not sure that my approach would qualify as one of the best counseling techniques, she says. Then she said, but Becky, if the cross shows me I'm far worse than I ever imagined, it also shows me that my evil has been absorbed and forgiven. If the worst thing a human being can do is kill God's son, and that can be forgiven, then how can anything else, even my abortion, not be forgiven? Becky said, I'll never forget the look in her eyes as she sat back in awe and quietly said, talk about amazing grace. This time she wept not out of sorrow, but out of relief and gratitude. I saw a woman literally transformed by a proper understanding of the cross. The story reminded me of Tim Keller's. I, I wonder if Tim Keller maybe even got his definition of the gospel from this passage. Because the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. Jesus came and, and died on the cross and paid and did everything necessary. And our record is bad. And our record is wrong. There is nothing to commend us to God in and of ourselves. Our, our, our goodness, as, as Paul would say, are like as Isaiah would say, are like dirty, rotten rags. Our righteousness does not measure up to God's. And yet, yet Jesus comes on our behalf and, and he substitutes himself with, with his record of righteousness and his life and his, his death on the cross. The minute you transfer your trust over to Jesus Christ, his record becomes your record. And in that minute, you receive God's verdict. And I said this before, God, what is God's verdict? You are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. That's his verdict of Jesus. And if you enter into Jesus' life, that's God's verdict for you. And, and, and folks, that changes everything if we get that truth. If we really, really get that truth, if we put our trust onto Christ, it changes everything. God's, God's verdict is the, the, the only verdict that matters. And it's the only verdict that will last. And so you don't have to be freaked out anymore about auditions and job interviews and first dates because you're not looking to them as the foundation of your life you're looking to god you're looking to the lord you're looking to him you no longer have anything to prove because you're approved you're completely you're completely a new person so one of our obstacles, I think, and, and, and it's a big one for, for those of us who've been around the church for a long time, we, 
we, we can, are, are in some ways can, can begin leaning through. That, that can happen to us, and we can never get away from that basic understanding of, of the cross being sufficient for all of our sin and even our self-righteousness. And so we gotta, we got to lay that down. We overcome that by laying it down and by trusting entirely in the righteousness of Jesus. Um, one more obstacle to hungering and thirsting for righteousness is that we satisfy our hungers elsewhere. How common is that? Elsie, uh, uh, not Elsie, what's your name? Ellie? Sorry. <laughs> We're going to change your name. Elsie, I like it better. Um, she read one of my all-time favorite scriptures. I've, I've preached from it before. But Isaiah 55 is one of those passages that God has often used in my life to kind of draw me back to him. Let me read the, those first verses. I'll just read it myself so you can all understand it. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Folks, it's here we see the problem. You know, while we need the drink and the bread that God offers without cost, we don't always want it. Our tastes get satisfied elsewhere. A few years ago, John Ortberg wrote an article where he talked about when he would take his, his kids to McDonald's, they'd always want the same thing. They'd want a happy meal. <laughs> Our kids do. He says, if they get the happy meal, they're, they're happy. <laughs> if, if they didn't, there was great wailing and gnashing of teeth, something like that. And, and he says that the odd thing is that when, what they're after is not the meal itself. They're not after the food. They want the prize, and he says, the prize is this pitiful thing, <laughs> worth maybe 10 cents, but for the moment, getting it is all that matters, and it is a pitiful thing, isn't it? I mean, we, we cleared out dozens and dozens of these crappy toys. Hey, uh, he goes on to say that this phenomenon is not limited to children. He says, when you get older, you don't get any smarter. He says, your Happy Meals just get more expensive. And the real tragedy is, for all their cost, they aren't any more satisfying. What Orpah's saying is really what Isaiah was saying. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? You know, my mother, uh, and, and I'm sure maybe your mom or your dad have said this to you, you as well, uh, when I reach for that junk food or that cookie just before dinner, don't eat that, you'll spoil your appetite. Said it to our kids this week, didn't we? And I wonder, folks, in what pursuit are you spoiling your appetite for God? What do you, what do you turn into? What is that thing? What is that, that idol, <laughs> that God, that, that uh, um, thing that you're pursuing? You're, you're looking for approval. You're looking at it for acceptance. You're looking for God's, <laughs> you know, acceptance. You want to be received, but you're not looking in the right place. I've been praying a prayer for you that I've been praying for myself for some time. I, I've been praying that you would be blessed with a gift of dissatisfaction in those things. That you would become dissatisfied. Those things would become hollow. I've been praying that they would become like chaff in your mouth. I don't even know what chaff in your mouth is like, but I suspect it's not a nice feeling. 
that it's something you want to spew out, that you go, I'm tired of this. And I sense that we hear this invitation, come, come, come. I've got things better. And God's waiting like that rancher for you to come, for you to respond. I think dissatisfaction might be just one of God's greatest gifts. I like how the philosopher uh, Philip or Peter Kreeft puts it. He says, dissatisfaction is the second best thing there is because it dissolves the glue that entraps us to false satisfactions and drives us to God, the only true satisfaction. And every day and every moment, Jesus offers himself as the source of all righteousness. As he said to a thirsty woman by a well in Samaria, so he says to you and I, ask of me and I will give you living water. And then in John 7, he says to us, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. From, his, from within his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And, and we don't just come once. For, for, for when we come to Jesus, he wakes up in us even deeper longings for him. The bread of life satisfies us, but it makes us hungry for more. George MacDonald put it this way, in things spiritual, increasing desire is the sign that satisfaction is drawing nearer. This righteousness of, of, of Jesus is what we're called to build our life on. It's the foundation on which we stand. Something you don't do just once. It's, it's the kind of thing you get up every day, each and every day, and you say, I have a righteousness that is not my own. And, and so for some of you this morning, this, this reminder is going to be a source of joy and, and <laughs> delight, and I hope will lead to even further freedom in your life. I have a righteousness that's not mine, but there are some of you who, who might say, I've never understood Christianity that way. I, I, I somehow thought I needed to earn it somehow, prove my, my worth to God uh, by my good deeds or whatever it might be. But we all have this need for Christ's righteousness, and if you haven't got this, you might be outside the, the kingdom, to be honest. Can I say this this morning? The door's open for you. Without money, without cost, you're invited to enter into the kingdom. Would you pray with me? Again, we pray, Jesus. Would you lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake, God? Lord, uh, we come this morning and we just want to together acknowledge our poverty in spirit. That in and of ourselves, we're hooped, we're lost, uh, and we have nowhere to go. Bankrupt and cannot pay the debt. Uh, and Jesus, we, uh, we want to acknowledge and admit that, that we're broken, that we're sinners. And, and, and that it's a core problem that, Lord, this, this absolute self-centeredness is just not going away on its own. And, and so we own up to that, Lord, that we have sinned against a holy God. Lord, you, you say, blessed are the meek. We want to learn meekness, Lord. We want to come to you and yield ourselves to you, uh, to your leadership, and, and to, to live into the life that you have for us, God. I pray. And Lord, you, you call us to righteousness, to rightness, to the good life. 
He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I would pray for each of us this morning that you would increase our hunger. You would increase our thirst. And that the things in this world uh, that are drawing us away, uh, Lord, we would um, become more and more dissatisfied. Will you bless us with a holy dissatisfaction, Lord, a desperate, desperate hunger for your approval, your, your rightness, your reception, God. And Lord, we, uh, we want to just together um, lay down whatever, whatever thing that's within that we've been trusting in for ourselves, our, our own righteousness. We, we bring that before you, Lord. Lord, like, like Paul, we want to consider all of that, all of that which we've held to our credit as garbage so that we can have Christ who took our place and in him we receive the righteousness of God. Make it so in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.